If you would please turn in your Bibles to Revelation, as Bill mentioned in his prayer there, working our way across the book of Revelation. We are now in chapter 5 for those of you who are new with us and those of you who have walked with us. You're well aware we are yet again, though, in chapter 5. If you turn there in your Bibles and follow along in the text of Scripture, there is something of, that I wish to point out with, to you by way of introduction at the beginning of chapter 5 as we're working our way through here is what we have seen so far because what we've seen through chapter 4 and chapter 5 are these appearings of God. So we've seen God the Father Creator appear in chapter 4. Then we've watched into chapter 5 there was yet another appearance. John saw and beheld yet another So the one who was seated on the throne, chapter 4, and we watched all of creation's response to the one who is, Behold, I saw someone sitting upon the throne. And then into chapter 5, now he's identified, Behold, yet I see another, the lion lamb. But this week, between the two appearances, so they've been similar. An appearance of one who is a king figure, who is identified, chapter 4, as royal and then as sovereign. Who could change your plans? You've created everything. So we've seen this king emerge for a vision for the churches who are struggling in the first seven letters. And then secondly, we saw creation testifying to the king who has emerged in four and five. Creation's response, the same adoration, praise, worship to the emergence of these kings or the blessed trinity. The king as... He has emerged, but now I want to draw by way of comparison. There is a tremendous joyful distinction in these two chapters as well. So the joy is they're the same. They're parallel. The king emerges and creation responds. You respond. Behold our king. Right? Adoration. Praise. Worship. It inspires that from you. Yet in praise and adoration. That is similar between he who is seated on, the, seated on the throne and a lion. And behold, I saw a lamb who was slain. There is now a distinction in praise. Which is your point of boasting. The distinctive quality of praise that is being offered by you this morning, by all of creation, eternally, forever, is a new song is being sang. Unlike the song before. And it is in distinction from the Father's work. That's why I I trust you boast when you sang about the Trinity. The Son, Father, Spirit, three in one. It is everywhere in the book of Revelation glorious in their work, the Father instituting His plan in all the earth, creating the earth by the word of His power, sovereignly ruling, regulating it, upholding it, sending forth His Son to accomplish its redemption. And then the Spirit coming as the Son goes to His coronation as King, sending forth the blessing of the Spirit that many might hear and Rise up and be saved. The beautiful work of the Trinity 
And so we see the Father in four, he who is seated upon the throne over all of creation. The Son emerges in chapter 5, yet the distinction of its boast is this new song that is sang to the Son. What is the nature of this new song? It's distinct between the Father and the Son. It's a song of redemption. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. This is the distinctive quality of celebrating Christ in chapter 5. His work in redemption. That is what sets these two texts apart. They're both Father on the throne. Behold, I saw him seated. And the emergence of the lion lamb. Both are royal. Both are kings. Creation adores both of them. Honoring the Godhead. Yet they distinctly honor the Son in his work of redemption. This is the distinction here. So I want to take the next few moments to rejoice with you from this text about the new song of redemption, I trust. You are singing in your soul and living out in your life is the new song of redemption from the royal, that is God, the Son who accomplished, who ascended to the throne, who is indeed your King and your Redeemer. You will behold Him, love Him, and live by His strength for His grace, for His name, for His glory. So, if you would please look at the text with me as I begin reading with you, and we cover this week, verses 7 through 14, as we will behold the royal Redeemer in this new song sang in glory to Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, is where I'll read with you. I'll read all the way through 14, and then we'll come back and begin making comment about our royal, that is our king, redeemer. That is the new song. Verse 7, I begin. And he went and took the scroll. This is the action of the Lamb. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures, you've already seen them in chapter 4. This is, again, creation's response. And the 24 elders who you have gazed upon before God's throne. They fell down before the Lamb. This is a comment here. If I could pause, I know I don't want to digress too far. But this is yet one of the most clear texts, as we would grasp, of Jesus of Nazareth and His deity in all of Holy Scripture. There's a tremendous blasphemy taking place in heaven right now before the throne of God or Jesus indeed is God. He is adored, magnified, and worshipped in the presence of God who said, I share my glory with how many people? No one. It's a glorious text about the beauty and the deity of Jesus. So the creation then falls down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they, here, here we see this distinction, because we've already seen the similarity there in verse 8. And now we see the distinction. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. 
For you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God. This is the new song. This is what you rejoice over, saint. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. This is creation's song that is new. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the four living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads, myriads, thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice. You see the, the beautiful choir there gathered in unison? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive power, to receive wealth, wisdom, might. He is worthy to receive honor, to receive glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. All that is in them, I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, might forever and ever. And the four living creatures, what could they say? But amen. And the elders, again from chapter 4, whenever they hear this, they fall down and they worship. This is the exaltation of Jesus. For the next couple of moments, I want to draw your attention first as we come back to the text to see the exaltation of the royal redeemer, the distinction of Jesus in the Godhead of rescuing his people. I want to draw your attention first to the point in which Jesus takes his position as king over all. I want to draw your attention there to verse 7 as this this scene is unfolding where John has wept because no one has been found worthy to bring history to its culmination. There is no one that can do this, and he is burdened. One of the elders comes with a word of comfort to behold the Lion of Judah. And here this lion emerges, and he is a lamb who in verse 6 is standing as though he had been slaughtered. Yet he is Royal. He has an imagery about him. This Jesus has an imagery about him as royal because there's the comment, he has seven horns. A comment on his royalty. So he is slaughtered yet royal. And it is a bit confusing. So as with the seven spirits, which are the seven eyes rather, there are seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. And the action next in verse 7, I trust, is empowering to you. In your life lived before him. In reading of Holy Scripture. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. As we spoke on this last week, just in brief, because it leads us yet again into the text for this week, this exchanging of the scroll is the Lamb approaching God's throne. Verse 
1 of chapter 5, the right hand of the sovereign of the universe possessed this scroll. The Lamb is now approaching he who possesses the scroll. That is all of heaven and earth's decrees. The Lamb approaches him to receive his authority to execute his decrees in all of the earth. What do I mean? What is the image that's being pictured here in the exchange of the scroll? Quite simply, Jesus is vested with the Father's authority over all of creation. When you hear that and you see its imagery, think about hearing his commands as you read Holy Scripture. When you read it and you think of your life lived before him, is it in light of this picture that he is not laying claim as one who cannot? He is not calling you to live in a particular way as just another voice among many. He is enthroned over all of heaven and earth. Does that give weight to you to hear him cry out? Flee sexual immorality. Why? What right do you have? Endure trial and tribulation by faith. Look to me. I cannot. I'll take it into my own hands and perform my own deeds according to my own wisdom. Can I call you to this text that he is not one voice among many. He is vested with the Father's authority over you. Over all the earth. As one to be heard and obeyed. Is Jesus seated upon a throne? Is he the resurrected ruler of all the earth? Indeed, he is, verse 7. He is enthroned at that moment. The exchanging of the authority of all of heaven and earth. From the one who was seated, he receives his authority. So as we look at the king redeemer, the royal redeemer, step one in grasping from this text for your good and my good and understanding this text, is Jesus royal? Yes, he receives the authority of the Father. He is enthroned in verse 7 as the Lamb who was slain. So first we see the exchange of the scroll that testifies to the royalty and kingship of Jesus. Secondly in the text, verse 8, is the response of creation. Look, it mirrors he who was seated in chapter 4. Look at the response. Verse 7 is the action. He receives the scroll as the only one in all the universe who is found worthy to do so. And creation testifies to his worthiness, testifies to his royalty in verse 8. So the action of 7 gives way to a response to Redeemer Community Church and indeed to all of creation in verse 8. What is the response to the truth of verse 7? And when he had taken the scroll, do you see the timing? 
How do we know what verse 7 is saying, that he's being enthroned? Look at the response of verse 8. When this occurred, when he approached him who is worthy and he took the scroll, when that took place, the response of all creation is very instructive. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down. When? When he had taken the scroll. They identified him as their king. They fell down before the Lamb. This is instructive for the enthronement of the royal Redeemer. The response, indeed, is immediate. They begin worshiping Christ in response to His being enthroned. The Apostle Paul writes this way as he speaks of these events. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, at the name, at the pronouncement, at the coronation of Jesus, every knee should bow. What is the scope? How many knees? The scope is every knee in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every single tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That is, He is the King. To the glory of God the Father, chapter 4. Father's throne room highly exalts his son for his own glory to be maximized in the worship of his son. His name is above every name. His royalty touches every life. I ask you, though, in the theological thinking of it, is that indeed all that it is? What does it mean? And I'm asking you, the listener, indeed, if I ask myself, but I'm asking you at this moment, if you're with me and you continue to labor with me through this glorious text, what does it mean for you? Each of you, to live as Christ, as your king. What does it mean? Only you can answer that. What shape, ethically, does that cause you to take? What shape? Relationally, what does that do to your relationships as you interact with another? What does it do? In other words, does the thought of Jesus being enthroned over all of creation as his people, does that have an effect upon the way you shape your life? Do you consciously, in any manner, find a connection between your life lived every day, Coram Deo, before the face of God? Are you informed 
in your decisions by the fact that Christ is your king. Or we see this grand picture, this beautiful theological thought, but then we just leave. A man, I scarcely call him a man. He's more of the Nephilim of Scripture, the giant. Never mind. He's one of America's greatest theologians. One of, some debate, he is the greatest mind of American theology. He published a systematic theological volume of 800 pages, which by today's standards, not very much, but indeed, at the time of its writing, it was massive. It's still for sale on Amazon.com. Still in reprint since 1871. Over two generations of pastors and theologians studied under this man. He fought hard all of his life for inerrancy. That the Bible is without error. That when we, God says, this is my son, there is no other name given that's not an error. He fought for that. And he produced this robust theology for many men and women, like I said, still buying it today on Amazon.com. He understood well the theological thought of Christ as king. He understood it theologically. This man's mind is massive. But then in writing to his grandson, thinking, out of all this beauty, out of all this power, out of all this revelatory image of, of, of the lion, of the lamb, of, in writing to his grandson, he simply wrote this way. I think it reflects his understanding very clearly of what it means to live under the reign and rule of Jesus. Dear Lenny, never pass a day without reading the Bible. And calling upon God in prayer. Wait a minute, I thought you were going to labor to tell us something glorious about this image. You mean that's where it takes you? Yeah. To love the Lord. Dear Lenny, learn to pray always. The Lord Jesus is ever near to you. You notice the Lord is king. It does not take long, Lenny, to simply offer, Lord, preserve me, Lord, help me, Lord, keep me from sin. It doesn't take long. We need to say this about a hundred times a day. This massive mind, right, who wrote about the kingdom of God, who knew this text, found its force in the simplest of ways. He goes on to list, Lenny, never gamble. That's what the enthronement of Christ offered to him. Never drink intoxicating liquor. 
Never use profane language. You mean the glorious thought of Jesus being enthroned will shape my mouth? It will if we receive it right. It doesn't always have to be apocalyptic grandeur that we behold and then we leave. But we still curse the second we walk out. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. No, don't incur debt. Live peaceably with all men. Lenny, never be afraid to confess Christ. Let your last words every night be, I will take Jesus Christ as my Savior and my God. May the blessing of God be upon you always and everywhere. Your loving grandfather, Charles Hodge. Princeton Theological Seminary, September 15th, 1876. Out of all of that, Dr. Hodge found the simplicity of the commands of Christ to be followed and submitted to because he was informed that Christ is his king. When you see the text and Jesus being enthroned, don't let corrupt communication come out of your mouth. It does matter. Because Christ is your king. As we continue through the text of the kingdom of God, as we see the glorious royal redeemer of Jesus Christ of all creation sang in a new song. We see the glory of his being appointed. But I want you to notice for the next couple of moments together the beauty of his kingdom as it is being expressed. Now we're going to look at the people of his kingdom, the work of redemption through the lens of the new song that is sang. Unlike any other song, it is sang before the Lamb of God and the Father, a new song. This new song, if we could put together what even is the concept of the newness of the song, but that the new song, think in these terms of yourself. It celebrates the new creation. Each one of you in Christ are a new creation. They give praise to him in a new song for the new creation. This is the newness. And what is highlighted that brought about the new creation is the purchase price. The purchase price of His blood. Look with me in verse 9 as it explains the worthiness of the Lamb by way of the blood that was shed to gather up the children. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. In other words, you are the king. And how did he become king? How did he ascend to the Father's side and be found worthy by his blood being slain? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. His blood is the 
instrument used in the work of redemption. It's the blood from the cross that it was spilt that is the agency or the instrument that is gathering the children. You are worthy because your blood was shed. The instrument of gathering the children. But if we exalt in the glory of God being expressed in the execution of Jesus, in His blood being spread, that we might be gathered, what does that mean yet again for me? In the thought of the blood that flowed for me, that I might be gathered in. Paul quite easily found an application to the church at Corinth. Do you not know? That you were bought with a price? All this nonsense? Where did it drive the apostle for exhortation? Where did it drive the thought of the blood being shed for the children? Then what are you doing? Do you not know? Is that why you're behaving this way? Is that why you're giving your bodies away? Because you don't know? You were bought with a price. What does that then compel me to do? He says, glorify God with your body. Live for Him. Don't you recall? Is it enough force for you to submit your life because you were bought with His blood? Does that compel you to offer up your life a Living sacrifice? When I struggle, what do I recall? When I feel autonomous unto myself as my own king, where do I go? I remember quickly. I am not my own. But I've been bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. What is its exhortation to me? What is it crying out to me by the Spirit? Adam, glorify God in your body. Recall the instrument that gathered you. Paul says in the Colossians 1, transferred you from darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved Son. What was the instrument that proved effective? His blood for me. He's exalted and praised by all of creation, the elders and the four living creatures, on the grounds of his blood being shed. This is the response. Worship, adoration, obedience. For his blood that is been shed. Notice the blood of Christ as the instrument to gather his people from where? And this is instructive as we consider even the church, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But if you look with me at the last portion there of verse 9, for you were slain and by the means, by the instrumentation of your blood, that instrument through which you ransomed people for God. 
Look at the people who were ransomed. They are ransomed by this one blood, by this one atonement from every. See the contrast? A singular redemption with multiple people gathered from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. A people, a single people. You have made them, verse 10, into a kingdom and priests to your God, to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. This is not a redemption to be sure. We are not looking at this text as though it is preaching that every man, woman, and child would be saved upon the face of the earth because of the atoning grace of Jesus. We know this is not true. It is not everyone without exception from every language, every tribe, every people, but it is a people without distinction from every tribe, and every language, and every people. Not without exception, but without distinction. And that is critical as we consider the life of the church. There are no distinctive qualities that Christ is compelled among men to honor in the work of redemption. There is nothing you bear this morning that compels him to redeem you from sin and slavery. You bear within your body no distinctive qualities that he must look upon and honor. There is no skin color that he prefers or that compels him to pour forth his blood an instrument to gather you from wickedness. There is no geographical location that cries out and demands him to visit. There is no language that speaks in such beauty that it compels with distinctive quality among all other languages that compels his blood to redeem. Do you believe that? It's not without exception. It's without distinction. Oh, the church would grasp this and live by it in the work of evangelism and the work of community. There is nothing that compels among men that must be honored of the Lord, lest we think there is something within us that compelled him to honor us and save us by his blood. Then begin to view others as less honorable, less compelling to be saved, less worthy. This text kills and destroys that. I want you to see this in force. I think 
James clearly grasps this in his exhortation to the church. Look with me quickly at James uh, back in your holy text to James chapter 2. And uh, I want to read the text at length with you. So I'd like you, if you have a text of Scripture, to turn there. Because this is clear for the church. And it has direct implications on Redeemer Community Church. As we would glory, one, in the grace of Jesus and His blood that flowed. And as we sing, it prevailed for me. Yet, might it not just be celebratory for me in way of arrogance, but bring forth humility that I would serve as recognizing there was nothing within me that compelled it. Look at James as he speaks to us there very clearly with the force of this text in chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Do you see that picture of heaven? Do you see verse five, or chapter 5 there? The Lord of glory, it is King Jesus. Don't show partiality. For if a man wearing a gold ring, fine clothing, comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in to redeem her. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, 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 oh come over here. You sit here in this beautiful, good place. While you say to the poor man, hey, go stand over there. Better yet, sit down at my feet. You have not, have you not then made distinctions? Do you see, it is, it is not without, it is, it is without distinction. You have made distinctions among yourselves. You've become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor of the world to be rich in faith? Heirs, just like John just said in Revelation 5, of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who are oppressing you? The ones who drag you into the courts? Are they not the ones who blasphemy the honorable name by which you have been called? If you really fulfill the royal law, King Jesus According to Scripture, you should love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, if you act like there's distinctive quality, you are committing sin. You're not convicted by the law and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you see that? applied to the church. He's gathering a people from many kingdoms without a compelling distinctive quality upon them. So those who are a part of that kingdom are compelled to act likewise. That's exactly what James is saying. Let us look then to our last portion of the text this morning. 
how the blood of Jesus doesn't eliminate this diversity either. Lest we now begin to err. Okay, I get that there's no distinctive quality at the beginning, but we have identified what is right for everyone. So let's eliminate the diversity. Honor it as we approach, and then eliminate it as we come together. It doesn't eliminate the diversity. It doesn't cancel out all kingdoms, all languages. But with it, it brings a God-centered unity. Verse 10, look with me. You have made them, these every. You have made the every into a kingdom. And priests to our God, they shall reign on the earth. Do you see the beauty of that? Christ takes by his blood from among every kingdom, worshiping many kings, and he makes them into one kingdom with only one king. Instead of eliminating diversity, it's bringing unity to the diversity. They don't cease their existence. They find commonality as members of the same kingdom now. Celebrating, adoring, and worshiping the same king. Do you see? We used to be of every nation. Now we're a nation. Unto God. He is our commonality. Gathered together to celebrate that which gathered us. His blood that was spilt for all of us. This is what binds us together. Not a distinctive quality that that we saw it originally, or we then, after, begin to artificially create. We celebrate one another's unity in the blood that flowed for each. And we celebrate the kingdom of God as He is the King of all of us. This is the unity of Christ's church. Not showing partiality. But honoring God is the tie that binds. This is the work of redemption. Taking the blood that flows to every. Gathering out the every to the one. To the one kingdom. Living under the experience of the one king. Let me ask you then, first fruits. If you're hearing this text and you're looking upon it, I'm compelled to ask you right away, is Christ even your king? The text cries out to you at this moment, don't delay. Paul would say to the church at Corinth, I'm pleading with you. Be reconciled to God. You see the instrumentation that reconciles. It was his blood that was shed. 
to the saints, those who say, He is my King. Are you living your creed? Are you living your confession? I ask it to you this way. If it is true that Christ indeed is your King, what would you write to Lenny? Your grandson. About life lived in the kingdom. What force it's had upon you. What each day its joys greet you. That little Lenny would grow up and rejoice in those things too. Or is it all just drudgery? It's all just grinding it out. It's meager. It's a religious of no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't. I don't know what I would tell him. And maybe it's back to question number one. Is Christ truly your king? Because it's a slice of heaven's joys. Not that every day is greeted with nothing but jubilee. We all know that's not true. Yet he is a sweet king. His burden is light. By his own grace, a gift of the Spirit, he'll bring you to overcome. And in so doing, what would you tell Lenny about the glorious impact that the joys of Christ as your king has brought you? Charles Hodge would say, don't let a day go by without reading your Bible. How about that? Let us pray. Our God, we celebrate your text of Holy Scripture. We celebrate what you have given to the church as a light and a lamp unto our dark, very dark pathway. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that then sheds the light upon the text, that it would enter the heart, that we'd have soil there that would receive it, and we'd have strength to believe it and be empowered to live it. So we praise you, Father and Son, for the sending forth of your Spirit. I pray for those who have heard the text this morning that indeed by the Spirit, this blessed triune God, the Spirit would apply the word so as Isaiah said, it goes out and it accomplishes, it hardens and it redeems. So we would just submit to you in all things as he who holds the scroll in perfect judgment, in perfect redemption. Would you let your word go forward? And let those who have not heard be called to obedience of the King who stands, whose blood was shed and resurrected and is enthroned, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you let your saints also be refreshed to think of the beauty of Jesus in the simplicity of joy. Let us, Lord, look to your word as delight, not just drudgery, not just duty, but let us hear from a seasoned saint of robust understanding. Simply try not to let a day go by without neglecting the word or praying for Lenny. It doesn't take long just to say, Lord, help me. Lord, keep me from sin. We must say it. Let us be humble as your people to say it, as he reminded, nearly a hundred times a day. All glory and honor due to Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is slain. In your name we pray. Amen.